Section 6 of The Red and the Black, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Red and the Black, Volume 2, by Stendhal. Translated by Horace B. Samuel. Pronunciation. If fatuity is pardonable, it is in one's first youth, for it is then the exaggeration of an amiable thing. It needs an air of love, gaiety, nonchalance. But fatuity coupled with self-importance, fatuity with a solemn and a self-sufficient manner, this extravagance of stupidity was reserved for the 19th century. Such are the persons who want to unchain the hydra of revolutions. The Johannesburg Pamphlet Considering that he was a new arrival who was too disdainful to put any questions, Julian did not fall into unduly great mistakes. One day, when he was forced into a café in the Rue Saint-Honoré by a sudden shower, a big man in a beaver coat, surprised by his gloomy look, looked at him in return just as Mademoiselle Amanda's lover had done before at Besançon. Julian had reproached himself too often for having endured the other insult to put up with this stare. He asked for an explanation. The man in the tailcoat immediately addressed him in the lowest and most insulting language. All the people in the café surrounded them. The passers-by stopped before the door. Julian always carried some little pistols as a matter of precaution. His hand was grasping them nervously in his pocket. Nevertheless, he behaved wisely and confined himself to repeating to his man, Monsieur, your address, I despise you. The persistency in which he kept repeating these six words eventually impressed the crowd. By Jove, the other who's talking all to himself ought to give him his address, they exclaimed. The man in the tailcoat, hearing this repeated several times, flung five or six cards in Julian's face. Fortunately, none of them hit him in the face. He had mentally resolved not to use his pistols except in the event of his being hit. The man went away, though not without turning around from time to time to shake his fist and hurl insults at him. Julian was bathed in sweat. So, he said angrily to himself, the meanest of mankind has it in his power to affect me as much as this. How am I to kill so humiliating a sensitiveness? Where was he to find a second? He did not have a single friend. He had several acquaintances, but they all regularly left him after six weeks of social intercourse. I am an unsociable, he thought, and I am now cruelly punished for it. Finally, it occurred to him to rout out an old lieutenant of the 96th named Levin, a poor devil with whom he often used to fence. 
Julian was frank with him. "'I'm quite willing to be your second, said Levin, "'but on one occasion. "'If you fail to wound your man, "'you will fight with me straight away.' "'Agreed,' said Julian, quite delighted, "'and they went to find Monsieur de Beauvoisie "'at the address indicated on his card "'at the end of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. "'It was seven o'clock in the morning.' It was only when he was being ushered in that Julien thought it might quite well be the young relation of Madame de Reynal, who had once been employed at Rome or the Naples Embassy, and who had given the singer Geronimo a letter of introduction. Julien gave one of the cards which had been flung at him the previous evening with one of his own to a tall valet. He and his second were kept waiting for a good three-quarters of an hour. Eventually they were ushered into an elegantly furnished apartment. They found there a tall young man who was dressed like a doll. His features presented the perfection and the lack of expression of Greek beauty. His head, which was remarkably straight, had the finest blonde hair. It was dressed with great care, and not a single hair was out of place. It was to have his hair done like this. That is why this damned fop has kept us waiting, thought the lieutenant of the 96th. The variegated dressing gown, the morning trousers, everything down to the embroidered slippers was correct. He was marvelously well-groomed. His blank and aristocratic physiognomy betokened rare and orthodox ideas, the ideal of a Metternichian diplomatist. Napoleon, as well, did not like to have in his entourage officers who thought. Julien, to whom his lieutenant of the 96th had explained that keeping him waiting was an additional insult, after having thrown his card so rudely in his face, entered brusquely Monsieur de Beauvoisie's room. He intended to be insolent, but at the same time to exhibit good form. Julien was so astonished by the niceness of Monsieur de Beauvoisie's manners and by the combination of formality, self-importance, and self-satisfaction in his demeanor by the admirable elegance of everything that surrounded him, that he abandoned immediately all idea of being insolent. It was not his man of the day before. His astonishment was so great at meeting so distinguished a person instead of the rude creature whom he was looking for, that he could not find a single word to say. He presented one of the cards which had been thrown at him. "'That's my name,' said the young diplomat, not at all impressed by Julien's black suit at seven o'clock in the morning. "'But I do not understand the honor.' His manner of pronouncing these last words revived a little of Julien's bad temper. "'I've come to fight you, monsieur,' and he explained in a few words the whole matter. Monsieur Charles de Beauvoisie, after mature reflection, was fairly satisfied with the cut of Julien's black suit. "'It comes from Staub, that's clear,' he said to himself, 
as he heard him speak. That waistcoat is in good taste. Those boots are all right, but on the other hand, just think of wearing a black suit in the early morning. It must be to have a better chance of not being hit, said the Chevalier de Beauvoisis to himself. After he had given himself this explanation, he became again perfectly polite to Julien, and almost treated him as an equal. The conversation was fairly lengthy, for the matter was a delicate one, but eventually Julien could not refuse to acknowledge the actual facts. The perfectly mannered young man before him did not bear any resemblance to the vulgar fellow who had insulted him the previous day. Julien felt an invincible repugnance towards him. He noted the self-sufficiency of the Chevalier de Beauvoisis, for that was the name by which he had referred to himself, shocked as he was when Julien called him simply Monsieur. He admired his gravity, which, though tinged with a certain modest fatuity, he never abandoned for a single moment. He was astonished at his singular manner of moving his tongue as he pronounced his words, but after all, this did not present the slightest excuse for picking a quarrel. The young diplomatist very graciously offered to fight, but the ex-lieutenant of the 96th, who had been sitting down for an hour with his legs wide apart, his hands on his thigh, and his elbows stuck out, decided that his friend, Monsieur de Sorel, was not the kind to go and pick a quarrel with a man because someone else had stolen that man's visiting cards. Julien went out in a very bad temper. The Chevalier de Beauvoisis's carriage was waiting for him in the courtyard before the steps. By chance, Julien raised his eyes and recognized in the coachman his man of the day before. Seeing him, catching hold of him by his big jacket, tumbling him down from his seat, and horsewhipping him thoroughly took scarcely a moment. Two lackeys tried to defend their comrade. Julien received some blows from their fists. At the same moment he cocked one of his little pistols and fired on them. They took to flight. All this took about a minute. The Chevalier de Beauvoisis descended the staircase with the same pleasing gravity, repeating with his lordly pronunciation, What is this? What is this? He was manifestly very curious, but his diplomatic importance would not allow him to evince any greater interest. When he knew what it was all about, a certain haughtiness tried to assert itself in that expression of slightly playful nonchalance which should never leave a diplomatist's face. The lieutenant of the 96th began to realize that Monsieur de Beauvoisis was anxious to fight. He was also diplomatic enough to wish to reserve for his friend the advantage of taking the initiative. This time, he exclaimed, there is ground for a duel. I think there is enough, answered the diplomat. Turn that rascal out, he said to his lackey. Let someone else get up. The door of the carriage was open. 
the Chevalier insisted on doing the honors to Julien and his friend. They sent for a friend of Monsieur de Beauvoisis, who chose them a quiet place. The conversation on their way went, as a matter of fact, very well indeed. The only extraordinary feature was the diplomatist in a dressing gown. These gentlemen, although very noble, are by no means as boring, thought Julien, as the people who come and dine at Monsieur de la Mole's, and I can see why, he added in a moment afterwards. They allow themselves to be indecent. They talked about the dancers that the public had distinguished with its favors at the ballet presented the night before. The two gentlemen alluded to some spicy anecdotes of which Julien and his second, the lieutenant of the 96th, were absolutely ignorant. Julien was not stupid enough to pretend to know them. He confessed his ignorance with a good grace. This frankness pleased the Chevalier's friend. He told him these stories with the greatest detail and extremely well. One thing astonished Julien inordinately. The carriage was pulled up for a moment by an altar which was being built in the middle of the street for the procession of Corpus Christi Day. The two gentlemen indulged in the luxury of several jests. According to them, the curé was the son of an archbishop. Such a joke would never have been heard in the house of Monsieur de la Mole, who was trying to be made a duke. The duel was over in a minute. Julien got a ball in his arm. They bandaged it with a handkerchief, which they wetted with brandy, and the Chevalier de Beauvoisis requested Julien, with great politeness, to allow him to take him home in the same carriage that had brought him. When Julien gave the name of Monsieur de la Mole's hotel, the young diplomat and his friend exchanged looks. Julien's fiac was here, but they found these gentlemen's conversation more entertaining than that of the good lieutenant of the 96th. By Jove, so a duel is only that, thought Julien. What luck I found that coachman again. How unhappy I should have been if I had had to put up with that insult as well. This amusing conversation had scarcely been interrupted. Julien realized that the affectation of diplomatists is good for something. So ennui, he said to himself, is not a necessary incident of conversation among well-born people. These gentlemen make fun of the Corpus Christi procession and dare to tell extremely obscene anecdotes, and what is more, with picturesque details. The only thing they really lack is the ability to discuss politics logically, and that lack is more than compensated by their graceful tone and the perfect aptness of their expressions. Julien experienced a lively inclination for them. How happy I should be to see them often! They had scarcely taken leave of each other before the Chevalier de Beauvoisis had inquiries made. They were not brilliant. He was very curious to know his man. Could he decently pay a call on him? 
the little information he had succeeded in obtaining from him was not of an encouraging character. Oh, this is awful, he said to his second. I can't possibly own up to having fought a duel with a mere secretary of Monsieur de la Mole, simply because my coachman stole my visiting cards. There is no doubt that all this may make you look ridiculous. That very evening the Chevalier de Beauvoisis and his friend said everywhere that this Monsieur Sorel, who was, moreover, quite a charming young man, was a natural son of an intimate friend of the Marquis de la Mole. This statement was readily accepted. Once it was established, the young diplomatist and his friend deigned to call several times on Julien during the fortnight. Julien owned to them that he had only been to the opera once in his life. That is awful, said one. That is the only place one does go to. Your first visit must be when they are playing the Comte Horry. The Chevalier de Beauvoisis introduced him at the opera to the famous singer Geronimo, who was then enjoying an immense success. Julien almost paid court to the Chevalier. His mixture of self-respect, mysterious self-importance, and the fatuous youthfulness fascinated him. The Chevalier, for example, would stammer a little, simply because he had the honor of seeing frequently a very noble lord who had this defect. Julien had never before found combined in one and the same person the drollery which amuses and those perfect manners which should be the object of a poor provincial's imitation. He was seen at the opera with the Chevalier de Beauvoisis. This association got him talked about. Well, said Monsieur de la Mole to him one day, so here you are, the natural son of a rich gentleman of Franche-Comte, an intimate friend of mine. The Marquis cut Julien short as he started to protest that he had not in any way contributed to obtaining any credence for this rumor. Monsieur de Beauvoisis did not fancy having fought a duel with the son of a carpenter. I know it, I know it, said Monsieur de la Mole. It is my business now to give some consistency to this story, which rather suits me. But I have one favor to ask of you, which will only cost you a bare half-hour of your time. Go and watch every opera day at half-past eleven all the people in society coming out in the vestibule. I still see you have certain provincial mannerisms. You must rid yourself of them. Besides, it would do you no harm to know, at any rate by sight, some of the great personages to whom I may one day send you on a commission. Call in at the box office to get identified. Admission has been secured for you. End of section 6 Reading by Malone.